Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did. Welcome to KCBS In-Depth, a discussion of one of the topics making news this week. This is KCBS In-Depth. In the days following a mass ramming incident in Sunnyvale late last month, police alleged that the driver was intending to strike Muslims. Then, just a few days later, we got news of a deadly shooting at a synagogue in San Diego, an attack against Jews apparently inspired by white nationalist ideology. These incidents add on to an already disturbingly long list of attacks against Jews and Muslims, and many in those communities now say, in this climate, their sense of personal security is eroding. It just seems like it's risky to go to synagogue now. This fear is real and, and people feel that they're going to be targeted. I'm Keith Menconi. This is In Depth. And today on the program, we're going to be hearing from members of both of these communities, both about that sense of fear, but also about the resilience and solidarity that is forming in response. We're seeing a lot of interconnectedness between communities. So Jews, Muslims, undocumented people, LGBT people, black people, People of faith and of no faith are saying, we understand that when they come for one of us, they come for all of us. First up, though, these high-profile attacks are actually just the tip of the iceberg. In fact, hate crimes that never make the news are on the rise in cities around the country. For just under half of the 30 cities we looked at, they hit decade highs, and 70% of all the cities were up. That's according to Brian Levin, who directs the Center for the Study of Hate and Extremism at Cal State San Bernardino. I spoke with him to help get a better picture of what these communities are up against. FBI data shows that we've been up for three consecutive years. California's been up for three consecutive years. His center is monitoring a number of disturbing statistics that track a troubling trajectory. Hate on the internet over the last several years increasing. Number of hate groups increasing. Hate crime in other countries increasing. We had a a spike in large public demonstrations by white nationalists. We also saw a spike with regard to violent demonstrations. Now, what's surprising is that while anti-Muslim and anti-Semitic sentiments, of course, persist, Levin says that we haven't actually seen any recent uptick in such views. So what accounts for all this? Among the factors he pointed me toward is increasing strain on the social fabric. What I think we're seeing is an increase in symbolic violence generally, of which hate crime is one part of it. If, if you look at the polls, people feel that race relations are attenuated. Sociopolitically, Pew showed that we are not only polarized, but we're entrenched in that polarization, uh, more so than in decades. And we're seeing a splintering 
and a fragmenting of the socio-political landscape along with social media, which sometimes creates echo chambers. Speaking of social media, he also pointed to the influence of the handful of online platforms that have become safe harbors for violent ideologies. If we look at some of the attacks, they'll reference back to New Zealand. In other words, there will be some letter or manifesto or possible statement. And what we're seeing is chain extremism. So people are getting radicalized on the internet, but rather than being catalyzed by a contemporary friend, which they sometimes still will be, they find themselves writing yet another chapter in a book of evil where other mass killers have posted something before them. So it's kind of interesting when you talk about all of these various forces that are in many ways pulling our society apart. You know, you hear the coverage of this and the the specific topic that most people are talking about is white nationalism, white power, uh, and, and how that ideology has fueled many of these attacks. But based on what you're saying, uh, it does sound like that is one part of a much bigger puzzle, and that bigger puzzle overall is perhaps even more disturbing. I think the bigger puzzle overall in some ways is more disturbing. We happen to right now see white nationalists and far right as the most ascendant extremism in the United States. But here's the thing. It's a rising tide that lifts all ships. And when there's an instrumentality like social media or other things, it will not be contained within one particular group. Technology is going to be shared across extremists. And we're also going to see not only uh, a gravitational pull from Uh, the most prominent threat, like white nationalists and far right, for instance, but it's also going to bleed over into other extremists uh, where violence is glorified and a certain kind of antagonistic and reactive extremism based on the conduct of others will cause a response. So New Zealand takes place and then somebody else wants to be a vigilante in response, which means loners in small cells can be radicalized without the aid of a large bureaucratic structure. Once again, that was Brian Levin, who directs the Center for the Study of Hate and Extremism at Cal State San Bernardino. You're listening to KCBS's In-Depth. Up next, we're going to be speaking now with leaders from the Bay Area's Muslim and Jewish communities. Those being Zara Bilu, who serves as the executive director for the Bay Area Office of the Council on American-Islamic Relations, and Diane Fisher, the Community Relations Council Director for the Jewish Federation of Silicon Valley. Here's that conversation. Zara Bilu, thank you so much for being here today. Chris, thank you so much for having me. And Diane Fisher, thank you as well. Thank you. So one of the reasons that I wanted to have this conversation is because every time one of these incidents happens, uh, some reporter, maybe it's going to be me, maybe it's going to be somebody else, is sent out to these places of worship throughout the Bay Area. And the stories that we're getting from both the faith leaders, whether it's at a synagogue or a mosque or some other uh, community center, as, as well as the congregants, is just a palpable sense that this is really having an impact on the way that people live their lives, the way that people worship, and the way that people view their own 
personal security. Uh, you know, there's obviously a lot of resilience in the face of all this news, but there's also, uh, I gotta say, some amount of fear. And so I'm hoping that uh, you can help our uh, listeners get some handle on uh, what folks are saying to you. So, Sara, let's start with you. What are you hearing from members of the community of faith in the Bay Area about how all this news is impacting them? I mean, I'll tell you that even in just the days following the incident in Sunnyvale, what I heard from friends was, am I safe wearing my headscarf outside? I also heard, we're all going to be going to the mosque a lot more in Ramadan, Um, you know, despite what mosques are doing to increase security. And of course, you know, we can talk about that. I feel unsafe going. And so there's this difficult conversation that a lot of us are having to have with each other, with ourselves of we lean into our faith to, because we remember that God protects us and that's why we are believers, but everywhere around us, we we see otherwise. And so the question becomes, what can I do differently? Um, can I do anything differently? Or is this just inevitable? Mm. And uh, Diane, I'll toss that to you as well. So for better and for worse, the Jewish community has a long history of um, having resilience in the face of adversity. So on the one hand, we have a, a lot of tradition that we turn to in these moments. Um, and so there is a, a sense of insistence that I will not be afraid to go. Um, that I, we heard that from Susan Ellenberg when she spoke at the vigil after the Pittsburgh shooting, um, and over 600 people applauded her statement because we all want to feel that way. We all don't want to be afraid to be who we are. Um, so, so more people actually do show up to services. People that we've never seen before, you know, that maybe are members in name, but then now feel a solidarity that they want to be there. Yeah. And then, and then even beyond that, though, you know, beyond the sense of security that many say that they feel like they're losing in their places of worship, then you have this ramming incident in Sunnyvale, which, again, police allege was an attack attempting to target Muslims. Uh, does the fact that it happened in a more or less random location, you know, out in public, out in Sunnyvale, Does that undermine the sense of safety for Muslims even further? You know, it raises two things. One is that the the first person, it reminds us that the first person killed in a post-9-11 hate crime uh, was a Sikh American. And so unfortunately, the people who would engage in white nationalist violence or any type of violence against minority communities in the United States are also often just so ignorant that they don't know the difference, right? So no one in the crowd that was attacked in Sunnyvale was Muslim. Some of them were South Asian, um, as well as like, European-Americans, and all of them could have been Muslim, right, because Muslims are that diverse, but none of them were, none of them were wearing any markers. And absolutely, that's why people are asking the question of, do I wear my headscarf outside, Mm -hmm. right? Like, am I safe, not just at the mosque or at the synagogue, but am I safe on the street, Mm -hmm. looking the way I do because I want to practice my faith? And so there have been a lot of conversations in the Muslim community about self-defense, about uh, the license to carry a weapon, and about safety nets outside. Uh, places of worship like does someone know where I am at all times like will someone notice if I don't come home tonight or if I'm late to work because it could happen anywhere hmm. I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about the support that we're seeing between faith communities Diane Fisher maybe you could tell us a little bit about what has the outreach been like uh, after attacks like this is is there a collaboration between uh, members of the Jewish and uh, Islamic faith? Absolutely. I would describe there being a resiliency network. It's Muslim and Jewish. It's 
Hindu-American, it's African-American, it's every community that has felt targeted, my email inbox is absolutely full when this kind of thing happens. And there are personal expressions of empathy and solidarity and support, and there are institutional expressions of statements so that to get the word out to people that they understand, that each of us understands that we're all in, as you said, we're all in this together. Um, but often I would say that when we see a rise in particularly in anti-Semitism, that many times it's described sort of as the canary in the coal mine. It's the indication that there is a, an illness in our society that needs to be healed and that all of us are more vulnerable when we see that kind of rise. And this brings to mind some of the things that uh, Brian Levin, who I just spoke with on the program, was uh, talking about. He was pointing out that while uh, white nationalism is the ideology that seems to be behind many of the most recent attacks, he also points out that one of the reasons that we are seeing an uptick in this kind of violent activity just has to do with many of the cross-cutting cleavages in our society and many of the, the ways that our society is being pulled apart and I'm curious for your thoughts on this, because there's obviously different ways to look at it. But I mean, do you, do you think that is it important to focus on any one ideology uh, that is causing all this? Or, or is do you see it more as all of a piece, all of just a generalized problem to be dealt with and fought against? I think when we see this level of increase of hate, we have to look at it from many different dimensions, right? So the white nationalist ideology is a piece that we absolutely need to understand and fight against. Um, but if we look back to, there is a book published, I don't know, maybe 20 years ago called Bowling Alone, about how our society has kind of uh, really suffered from the lack of things such as just a simple bowling uh, group and ways to interact with each other. We don't know each other. We mm -hmm. don't know our neighbors, right? It's cultural institutions at solidarity. Right, absolutely. So so what our organizations are doing are constantly bringing people back together to fight against that that societal, you know, breaking apart with intentional bringing of people together. And and that's what I think our, our call is to the rest of uh, the society is at your PTA meeting, at your book club, at wherever you are gathering with people to raise up these conversations and speak openly about the problems so that we can address it and change it. Hmm. Zara, would you have anything to add to that? No, that's right. I mean, I I worry that it's it's one, like people are falling into sort of their individual selves and, and not building community, not getting to know each other. There's the rise of white nationalism. And then, of course, there, I mean, you know, we have to name it. There's also a president who is encouraging all of these things in so many ways through through his tweets, through his language, and through his policies. Like not a day goes by that we don't hear about some other atrocious policy that he is pushing forward that is institutionalizing hate against a variety of communities. Hmm. And let's talk about the security measures that have been put in place. Uh, again, going back to just my own very narrow uh, experience with this every time, you know, after one of these attacks occurs, um, all the religious centers around the Bay Area, you'll see a police car right out front. Uh, you'll hear about the, the police reports of, you know, stepped up patrols and all that. Uh, but also you'll see security guards out front as well. And I think more and more those security guards are becoming permanent fixtures rather than temporary fixtures. Uh, Diane, if you could tell me a little bit about what kind of work has been put into strengthening uh, these religious centers. Sure, and specifically on Saturday, 
after the shooting happened on Saturday morning, there was um, a celebration of the end of Passover at the Jewish Community Center on Saturday evening, and Las Gadis police were definitely um, staying there. At the Jewish Federation, we um, funded a security assessment um, grants to all of the local Jewish institutions so that they could determine uh, whether they're doing everything they can do and that they need to do. So that happened post-Pittsburgh that we offered those grants to all of the institutions. And so, um, so that's a piece. They all have definitely increased the things they're doing, whether it be cameras or film on the windows and those types of things. Uh, but also strengthening the relationships with local law enforcement. We have always had, you know, relationships with uh, local law enforcement, FBI, all of us have go to meetings and do trainings and all these kinds of things. We had active shooter trainings. If you work in this you know, area, you, you have to do that. Um, so, so all of that has, has definitely increased. So, so members, staff working at these facilities, they're going through active shooter trainings now? Yes, yes I have. How you, you've gone through that personally. I mean, yeah. tell me a little bit about what that experience is like, because on the one hand, I imagine that having that experience under your belt and having the extra resources at hand must add to the sense of security in some regard. But also, it's just a tragedy that that's necessary. It absolutely is. It kind of feels unreal that you need to do that. It does. Yeah. yeah. Tell me, uh, Zara, as well, so has there been more resources put to this? Uh, and, and actually, I should mention uh, before we go on, uh, uh, Governor Gavin Newsom has mentioned that he is hoping to put $15 million into his forthcoming budget towards strengthening some of these so-called uh, soft targets. So, uh, Zara, I mean, tell me a little bit about what you're seeing in your community in this regard. Yeah, we, we definitely welcome the news about Governor Ga Gavin Newsom's additional proposed funding, and we're hopeful that it will help mosques and community mm -hmm. centers increase their security. The reality is security is really expensive. Mm. Not every mosque can afford what other mosques can and vice versa. So a mosque mm -hmm. in Silicon Valley can pay for more than a mosque in a rural area or a mosque in a low-income community. Mosques um, in this region and really across the country started to increase their security several years ago after the shooting at the Gudwara in Wisconsin, mm. right, where, um, again, someone went into a Sikh place of worship and attacked worshipers. And so mosques then started to build relationships with local law enforcement where they didn't already exist or strengthen them where they existed, hire private security, and think through even things like which doors are open at which times, which when we think about the shifting way we engage our places of worship. One of my favorite things about going to the mosque when I was a kid was that I could go at any time and I could pray or play or take a nap, right? But that there was always uh, a welcome space for me. And I, you know, I carried that through college as I would commute from home to college and know, hey, there's a mosque on the way, I'm gonna stop here. And now I, I don't know if I can, I don't know if it's open, I don't know what the security protocols are at those mosques. And so they're hiring security, they're putting up cameras, they're working with local police departments, they've done things. The Muslim Community Association here um, in the South Bay has hosted an active shooter training, not just for staff, but also for community members. But the thing that I will note about law enforcement that's tricky is in some cases, calling law enforcement doesn't make a community member feel safer. If they are black, if they are undocumented, if they have any trauma with law enforcement, there's this difficult tension of who do we call to feel safe because in some cases it's not the police. And so we've seen, and this isn't to take away from the service that police officers are providing to mosques, but also to name that for certain members of our communities, 
that that doesn't make them feel any safer, which is why then active shooter trainings, self-defense classes, uh, private security and community defense alternatives are, are really important right now also. Keeping things focused on the local level, what would you like to see change in terms of what both believers and non-believers could be doing to bridge some of these gaps, bridge some of these uh, chasms of understanding. I know that, for example, uh, Berkeley dedicated an entire week last fall towards uh, anti-hate activities. Uh, they were trying to draw community together. Uh, I think one of the most interesting things that they did is they provided some training on what to do when you are a witness to uh, some hateful act occurring. That seemed like you know practical skills uh, right there. What what else would you like to see done here in the Bay Area to both make people feel safer, but also perhaps make some of this distance that we're feeling uh, less real? Uh, Diane, any thoughts there? Sure. I think starting with our schools is a really important place. You know, there is a connection between speech that is bad along the line to ultimately to bad acts, right? So starting back at middle schools and high schools. I really would like to see a whole lot more activity around building solidarity across difference with, uh, in students. Um, I'm starting to work right now with um, Islamic Networks Group. They have a new program encouraging Sikh Muslim and Jewish students to um, enhance their own leadership and to step up in their schools and share their faith with their fellow students and also stand together doing that to demonstrate you know, a, a way of behaving and a change of culture. Right? Mm -hmm. So schools stepping up really meaningful programs that help students and develop student leadership to change their culture, I think is a really important piece. And then as and I mentioned- just, that, I'm sorry, that, that would entail like more uh, literature about uh, sensitivity or more literature about history? What, 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 would, what would that entail exactly? Understanding each other. But as I say, I'm really focusing on student leadership. I think that schools need to support it and faculty members themselves need to develop you know, their own understanding of their implicit bias and so forth. But, but the student leadership, I think, is what ultimately can change the culture in a school. Um, and so that's what I'm trying to encourage, is, is helping students um, have the confidence to stand up and to stand with each other um, you know, with targeted communities and um, teach their fellow students uh, about their beliefs and that they are together. Sorry, anything you'd want to add to that? So that's actually a training that we provide. We've done dozens of them across the Bay Area and actually, uh, I believe, participated in the one in Berkeley that you mentioned. We It's called a bystander intervention training. Mm -hmm. What it does is it helps people build the muscle memory that it takes to overcome the fight or flight response that we have when we are scared. Because a lot of us would like to say, I'd like to be like, yes, if I saw someone harassing a trans individual or if I saw someone targeting an undocumented person, I would step in. But if I've never done it before, that I'm not going to do it when I'm terrified and when I'm actually in the moment. And so what we do is we offer it at places of worship, schools, libraries, universities, and really anywhere people will gather people, we'll send our trainers. And what they do is they, they work people through scenarios where they get to put what they learned like in, in a short lecture to use. And so the first time I'm intervening is in a practice session. So should I ever really need those skills? I've done it before and I'm not 
a first timer. And so we're, you know, huge advocates of that training in part because we, we offer it, but we, you know, we've borrowed it from other groups. Some of our partners offer it also. We want people to develop the skills, not just to defend themselves or how to shoot a weapon, which are conversations that are happening in the community, right? Or like, what do I do if someone pulls off my headscarf? But what do I do as someone who has privilege when I see one of my neighbors or, or friends being attacked? And so I'd say that that's a really big one. The other two that I would offer are that our elected officials in the Bay Area and across California have really branded themselves as the leaders of the resistance. And that's really exciting. And we need them to use their bully pulpits to do things like Governor Newsom doing the or providing the additional offering of the security funds, like various assembly members and state senators taking to Twitter and condemning hate speech and hate violence as as it occurs. People are looking to them for thought leadership, for action and thought leadership. And when they provide that, I'm confident that the region and that their constituents will follow. And then the last thing I think, you know, is something that comes to mind for me as I hear Diane talking about how we don't really know each other these days. Muslims um, believe that we are not believers. We believe that we are not believers if we go to sleep while our neighbors are hungry. And when asked, you know, what, what is a neighbor? It's 40 houses in each direction. And every time I hear that, I'm, you know, I, I'm forced to pause because do I know if my neighbors are hungry? Do I know their names? Hmm. And so we're urging people to to get to know their neighbors so that they can reach out to you should they ever need something so that you can be of service to them, but also so that we can all combat stereotypes simply through human interaction. Hmm. Can it be kind of awkward, though, to make that first step in a lot of cases? I mean, for folks that you mentioned, there's a lot of people out there that perhaps have never met a Muslim individual. Right. For folks that would like to change that, I mean, what's what's the way to do that? Is it walking into a mosque? I feel like that ne- wouldn't necessarily be... It's a great question. Yeah, yeah I mean, I, I wouldn't mean, want to impose my presence on no, anyone. No, no, that, that's, that's a fair question. So, you know, I was talking to someone about something completely unrelated yesterday. It was about, like, marriage and homeschooling. And she said, well, there, it's a lot of work, but it's worth... Like, anything that's worth having is going to be a lot of work. Like nothing that is good comes easy. And so I think about that even with neighborly relations, right? Is that it is a lot of work to like come home from work and be tired and have to deal with like cleaning my house and the mm-hmm. bills and all these things. And then also be like, and I need to check in on the person next door or I need right. to, you know, overcome my awkwardness and get to know them. And I would say <laughs> it's it's worth, because we know that it's worth it, right? Like we, mm. the, the data shows that getting to know each other is helpful. We also know that we can rely on our neighbors to, to take care of each other when things happen, which means that it's going to be some hard work on the front end. Now, in terms of, you know, specific religious institutions and how to, you know, access them, uh, for Muslims specifically, we're entering the holy month of Ramadan where Muslims will be fasting and mosques across the region now for nearly 20 years have been hosting uh, open house events throughout the month uh, to invite people in for dinner. So not only do you get to come in and meet Muslims, you get free good spicy food sometimes, right? Hard to argue And with that. so um, I, I frequently encourage people to look up the mosque in your region. Uh, most of them have websites, contact information. If they're hosting an open house, it'll be on their website. But a lot of them, even if they're not hosting open houses, do frequently uh, welcome visitors for tours. I think I have four iftar invites. Yeah, there you go. I'm looking forward to. <laughs> Busy couple of weeks ahead of you. So, of course, you know, with all that in mind, we are coming up on a national election cycle, and if it was anything like 2016, which no matter what side of the political aisle you were on just felt awful. I mean, it was just an awful experience to go through. Um, I'm, I'm sure a lot of those bad emotions are going to come up once again. What does that look like uh, sitting from where you're sitting, Zara, in terms of what you see coming down the pipe? 
You're, I mean, you're absolutely right. The 2016 felt awful. No matter which candidate you were rooting for, what I was concerned about was no matter who won, we were going to face increased hate crimes. And we saw that in the lead up to the election. We saw it in the days after the election. And what I worry about with 2020 is that much of the pickup in hate felt like it didn't really begin till one year in advance of the last election. We're right now a year and a half out, and it's already feeling overwhelming. And so I really hope that your listeners will um, make use of the trainings that our organizations are offering, that they'll reach out to their local religious places of worship and, and visit them if they've never been before, and that they'll get to know their neighbors. Of course, I you know, I can't fail to mention, I hope that they will vote and, and get involved in, in the campaign cycle themselves, because what we're looking at is, you know, several years now that we've lived through of increased hate, hate violence. And I want it to end. And I want all of us here in the Bay Area to be leading the way to build something better for ourselves and for our families. I have to say that I'm just such a firm believer in the value of this work. Um, I, I was originally a software engineer, and for the last 15 years, I've been doing this community building work, and so I deeply believe in its value. But I have seen that the only silver lining in what we've been going through is that more and more people have been knocking on my door and saying, how can I help? How can I participate? What can I do from every part of our society and people who have never, ever stepped up before? So that is the the nice piece about this, that it is bringing people out to engage in their community. Our JCC is looking to be a voting center um, in the in the next election um, and and to just continue to build that sense of solidarity in the community. All right. Well, certainly a lot to think about. And uh, I hope you guys don't take it the wrong way, but I hope that we don't have to have a conversation like this again anytime soon. Be happy to talk about something else. Absolutely. Uh, we've been speaking today to Dara Billu and Diane Fisher. Thank you both for speaking with me. Thank you. Thank you. We've been speaking to Zara Bilu with the Council on American-Islamic Relations and Diane Fisher with the Jewish Federation of Silicon Valley. This has been In-Depth. You can find past episodes of the program online at kcbsradio.com or wherever you get your podcasts. For In-Depth and KCBS, I'm Keith Manconi. We'll see you next time. Just heard KCBS In Depth, a news interview program for All News 740 and FM 1069, KCBS. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcast. You'll be glad you did.